0: Hi, everybody. Before we get started on this week's episode, which was recorded on Tuesday, uh, I'm here with Joanna for a quick uh, extra segment on the SAG Awards. Uh, the nominations were announced on uh, Wednesday after we recorded, so we're here to talk about them. And first, I, I think congratulations are once again due. Joanna, your PR efforts for Taryn Edgerton have not gone unnoticed. Listen, hire me, Hollywood.
2: Um, me parading up and down all the streets of L.A. in sequins, has finally paid off. All those all custom the made feathers. sunglasses. <laughs> yes, the, my platform boots. Uh, yeah, Taryn on the road. Like, what do you do? You think like he has? a shot at an Oscar? Novel, he does, I get, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, he does as much as anyone, I guess. I mean, this and the Golden Globes list being so different. I mean, Golden Globes nominate comedy and musical and drama, so it, it's kind of hard to tell, but... You have Adam Driver, Joaquin Phoenix, Leonardo DiCaprio as kind of this recurring pair that it feels like are going to show up no matter what. Uh, but then um, Antonio Banderas made it in at the Globes. Jonathan Price made it at the Globes. They're not here. Taron Egerton uh, was at the Globes in comedy. I don't think anyone necessarily expected him here. I don't know. It's And Christian Bale, I feel like, is another X factor. Um, I'm yeah. kind of happy to see, like, we keep talking about best actors being the super crowded race, and I'm happier that we don't have a lot of clarity on who's going to make the final list, but all these people are getting a spot to be Honored that it makes me glad.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, something that uh, I had noticed and then quickly figured out the reason why is that you know Pesci and Pacino are nominated and supporting De Niro's not nominated in lead but he's getting a lifetime achievement award and I guess I just I can't remember if that's happened before where someone's getting a lifetime achievement award so that the body doesn't bother to nominate them in the category they're getting nominated elsewhere in, yeah I, suppose. I guess it could definitely I be part
0: of the logic here I can still see De Niro missing out on an Oscar because it's kind of the less flashy performance of the three yeah, and true. Uh, best actor is so ridiculously competitive but yeah that is interesting it does feel like less of a big deal than it might be if he wasn't getting the lifetime award um and obviously the irishman is such a big contender otherwise like it got an ensemble nod here as we probably expected it to it will get a best picture nomination um but yeah he's definitely a question mark maybe more than you might have expected uh, a couple weeks ago when everyone was talking about the irishman on twitter
2: yeah i guess i guess if um if de Niro's a question mark then Taryn feels
0: like like kind of lucky. I'm so proud of him. I hope he feels lucky. I'm very proud of him too. Uh, He's worked very hard on his
2: campaign, not yeah. to mention the film. Alright, I'm done. He got his nomination. I can, I can relax. Well
0: then um, uh, we should yeah. congratulate you on the other thing. Uh, you've been a couple months ago, you kind of came on to remind us that Jamie Foxx is really good at working a room and I feel like Just Mercy really dropped off the radar for a lot of us uh, as an Oscar contender and then here comes Jamie Foxx as a Best Supporting Actor nominee today. So congratulations to you on that too.
2: Do you ever kick yourself for swings you take on Little Gold Men? Um, (laughs) I I do all the time and I was just kicking myself. I was like why did you try to plate your flag on Jamie Foxx? Everyone's ignoring Just Mercy and then this happened this morning and I was like yes he is. He's (laughs) like I mean he's also very good in the movie we should say and once again that movie dropping off I think is, I mean, it might be indicative of other like, you know, politics in terms of like what kinds of movies and what kinds of actors get nominated during award season. But it seems like such a classic award season season. Performance-friendly movie and Jamie Foxx's performance in that movie, his role in that movie, as well as Tim Blake Nelson's, I would say, like Michael B. Jordan is playing more of like a straight man to like these sort of bigger, flashier, emotionally like very emotional performances. So like the fact that he's in there, it shouldn't have, shouldn't surprise us because in any other year or at least five years ago, Just Mercy feels like such an award season uh, yeah. film. But yeah, I don't know if it'll go beyond this, but this makes me feel like I wasn't an idiot for raising that <laughs> first place so thank you well this is pro- I want to offer my yeah, go yeah ahead. so well I wanted to offer my condolences to you on uh the lack of two popes mm, I
0: know my popes I mean as a as, as a sag thing like you know it's, it's an ensemble in theory but it's two different people you can see how like movies with bigger ensembles might have an edge there um I'm not giving up on two popes being in the Oscar hunt but uh it definitely does uh it doesn't help so you know condolences to me and my pope shoes
2: well, yeah, and I mean it's a we we've been thinking a lot about screenwriting for that, and there's no screenwriting category at the SAG, so yeah. you know, still still fingers crossed for the the Pope's and screenwriters, and then also Little Women. I went to offer my condolences yeah. to everyone about Little Women. That's just uh, I'm I'm surprised like Saoirse Ronan not getting into lead actress. Uh, You know, it it makes space for both Lupita Nyongo and Cynthia Riva. And we've been talking about the fact that, like, it shouldn't just be like these four white women locked in and within, like, one slot for someone else. But Florence Pugh not getting nominated is really surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, I have to admit.
0: There's a sense that that's not how anyone votes, but it's like a lot of the spots that we thought might go to Little Women wind up going to Bombshell. You know, you get Nicole Kimmon and Supporting instead of Florence Pugh. You get an ensemble nod for Bombshell instead of Little Women or, you know, many other films. I definitely would have liked to see more from Little Women here. I don't think... The movie hasn't opened yet. Like, I still think it has a lot of potential. Same with Just Mercy, really. Like, both of those movies are coming at Christmas. I don't think those narratives are done. But I really would have like to see little women here Um, and even though as you were saying like I am glad to see Cynthia Rivo and Lupita Nyong'o both get nominated to kind of explode that idea that it's all the actresses of color competing for one slot and it'll be really interesting to see how the Oscars might might or might not reflect that.
2: Absolutely, and and yeah, I was I was surprised to see all the bombshell ladies in there. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I and maybe maybe I need to think about the SAGs and their interest in media stories because we won't get into TV too much because um, you know life is life is too short for us to talk about everything. But um, the morning show got in um, several nominations here as well as at yeah. the Golden Globes. So you know, it's not just like a Golden Globes liking the shiny new apple. You know, the SAGs uh, responded well to that show so these are stories about media so maybe that is something that people are very interested in seeing uh, examined yeah,
0: yeah. Um, anything else you uh- movie-wise that you want to get into, like Jojo Rabbit uh, kind of keeps popping up. Scarlett Johansson in supporting here. I was just looking at the Golden Globes, like uh, Kathy Bates and Annette Bening were both Globe-nominated and don't show up here, although apparently Kathy Bates, there was a clerical error that submitted her as the lead actress for Richard Jewell, which is wild. Oh, uh, so okay. that might explain some of the weirdness of the supporting category. She still feels like she's uh, kind of sneaking up to me. Um, I mean, we're we're prefacing an entire episode where we're going to talk about a lot more of this uh, before we need the SAG nomination. So but I don't think too much I don't think there's too much shaking up in here other than maybe considering Jamie Foxx or Cynthia Erivo um, or maybe Bombshell as bigger contenders than we did yesterday.
2: Yeah. Um, the double nomination for Scarlett uh, Johansson mm-hmm. seems like worth worth mentioning. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult. What do we think of the SAG Awards? I think of the SAG Awards wins like in terms of the timing and when it comes and it will still it'll still come, forgive me, I don't know the date. It's on the 19th, so it'll be
0: two weeks before the Oscars.
2: Yeah, like when it comes, it's usually about Cementing a narrative at that point, the win mm-hmm. often feels that way. Um, the sags don't tend to like go rogue the way that some other um bodies do, so you have like you'll have like BAFTA and SAG, and you start to like really feel where things are headed. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of nominations, I don't know that I feel like anything has fundamentally changed, uh, except for maybe bad news for little women and maybe, um. Good news for Taryn.
0: Yeah. So. Oh, we should also note that uh, Parasite getting a ensemble nomination, uh, it really made me happy. Uh, yeah. Because, like, you know, it's SAG. It's an American actors union. Like, you can imagine them having an American bias. But I feel like that really shows that people love Parasite and want to acknowledge it. And my God, what a great ensemble. Like, that would that would win my personal ensemble prize in a heartbeat.
2: I completely agree. I completely agree with that. Like, I was a little surprised not to see Mary's story in there, especially since it's like, it like is winning the, that version of that award at the Indie Spirits. Like they've already announced Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. Mary's story is winning that. But at the same time, like all, you know, Laura Dern, Scarlett Johansson, and Adam Driver are all nominated. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, you, it's nice to reserve that slot for a film where one performance is maybe not going to get the standout recognition, so you can honor the whole. And yeah, Parasite is just an incredible group. I, I like. We've been struggling, I think, all award season long. To we've we've all landed on like one performer out Parasite to say sing, single out, but it seems unfair because that is just like a group that works so well together
0: yeah yeah i think song kang ho uh, remains a decent supporting actor contender as we've seen with jamie foxx like that fifth slot uh is possibly up for grabs um but yeah if if the oscars had had an ensemble category too i'd love to see it there but in the meantime i'm thrilled that the sags nominated it um all right should we throw to the rest of the show we did it let's let's go back in time to yesterday (laughs) when we
2: recorded the rest of the show
0: hello and welcome to little gold men the award season podcast from vanity fair
3: it's such an honor to present this next award.
4: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to. And
3: um, the Oscar goes to. And I
4: can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like
0: me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won best picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of vanityfair.com, here for the second time this week in our busiest time of year. Uh, I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us uh, for the first time in a while is our Hollywood writer, Johanna Desta. Hello, nice to be back. Uh, Johanna, you and I have been working together to cover like every like step of awards news that keeps coming out. And I've been, I've been telling you that like you have memorized like which one's a precursor and which one's not. And so it only made sense to bring you in to help us make sense of the massive amount of awards that have been announced over the uh, last couple of weeks. So thank you for, for coming back. Oh my gosh, of course. That's all I write about now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we talked about the Golden Globes earlier this week in the episode that hopefully you've listened to already. Um, But there's a ton of other stuff to get into. Uh, So we want to talk about the New York Film Critics Circle, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, the Critics Choice Awards, uh, probably some other critics awards that I'm not even thinking of and kind of how that's all fit together. Uh, And then we're going to talk about some of the new releases that are out this week, including some of these awardsy titles. And at the end of this episode, we're also going to have an interview uh, that our colleague Julie Miller did with Greta Gerwig. To my eternal envy, she got to talk to Greta Gerwig about Little Women. So we'll hear that in the back half of the episode. But we should probably start, if we're just going to go back chronologically, last week, uh, Richard, you kind of handicapped the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, which you were going to go vote in the following day. Uh, you made a bold prediction on behalf of Jennifer Lopez, which mm-hmm. uh, proves that you, you're not the vote fixer in that group, which uh, which not. surprised me, honestly.
5: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, well, I mean, the, the thing about it is there's really not a lot of vote fixing to be done. Because, I mean, I'm, we're not really supposed to talk about the vote, so I won't sp- talk about specifics. But, like, it's not a sort of conversation around a table where we all sort of, you know, come up with a compromise. It's all voting it's all kind of secret ballot voting so so there's only so much you can do um and 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 what laura dern being on that list means is that like marriage story got something and and you know i think it would have been weird if that movie didn't get anything um and i think that you know the group all told was able to spread the wealth pretty well uh, in terms of you know we have a lot of different movies represented there's only doubling up i think in, in one instance
0: when you talk about spreading the wealth, like what makes this critics group unique compared to like the Critics Choice Awards or even the Golden Globes is you're all in a room together. You're kind of there watching the vote play out. It's not like you're submitting your vote and then it all just gets tallied up without you right. seeing it. So so when you're doing that, you're like, OK, so Parasite won for this. I don't want to give it that. Like, does that thought really go into your head?
5: I can only speak for myself. But, yeah, I mean, I think there's a certain, you know, you, you want the list to be interesting. You want it to be you know fair and and, and representative uh, of the year. I think I mentioned this when talking about doing best of the year list uh, for VF.com. It's just like, um, to, to some extent, this is all pretty made up, you know, and, and there's no there's no law that we have to follow. There's no hard and fast rule. It, it's just kind of what you feel, you know, sort of speaks to the year the, 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 the most plainly. Did all of my first choices win? No, but I'm happy with the bulk of the winners and um, it seemed like the group was too. And, you know, we have an instant reaction metric metric in Twitter now. And and I would say that for every kind of disappointed what happened to JLo tweet, there was a yay Antonio Banderas or a yay Lupita Nyong'o who won for us and uh, Banderas, of course, won for Pain and Glory um, in the lead acting categories. You know, so on on the whole, I think we we left the afternoon, um, well, morning into afternoon, feeling good, and uh, it seemed like uh, everyone else did too. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, the LA Film Critics Association gets to kind of, you know, edit our mistakes and do their own cool <laughs> different things. And um, you know, as ever, you know, Marriage Story presents a very. Um, antagonistic dialogue between the coasts and and maybe the critics groups uh, at least that one year in December, or that one week in December every year um, that we get to say, no, we're just having a friendly amicable conversation at least that's how I I choose to see it
0: (laughs) Well, I thought it was interesting specifically that uh, the Los Angeles film critics who announced on Sunday, I think that they had The Irishman as their runner-up to Parasite, um, which I think ahead of time I might have predicted that Parasite would have won New York Film Critics Circle. Um, but uh, I think Mike was in a Twitter d- dialogue with someone in L.A. who was saying, like, the affection for The Irishman in L.A. is not as much as it is in New York because, you know, The Irishman is such an East Coast movie. Um, but that's kind of seen to be disproven by the the, the excellent run The Irishman's been on for the last week.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, there is something a bit more universal about the Irishman, than than some other sort of more East Coasty movies, you know, I think it has a heft beyond its particular plot. In that, you know, the, the Scorsese of it all, the De Niro, Pacino, Pesci of it all, the Netflix of it all, weirdly, which I think has all of a sudden gone from just a couple years ago, a lot of voting bodies being like, no, like making the sign of the cross, we we're gonna you know, be gone, and now it's kind of like, you know, what we're gonna show that like cinema, is cinema, and it doesn't matter where you get it from, and. You know, I saw that happening in, in critics groups, uh, but also just like in the, the general sort of film discourse uh, online over the past couple weekends between Irishman and Marriage Story dropping, there was a lot more chatter than there normally would be for a quote-unquote, you know, I mean, not that Irishman's art house, but you know what I mean, like a, a awardsy movie. Yeah, it's three um, and a half
0: hours, Yeah, and, you know, yeah, about a bunch of old guys.
5: People were really talking about it, and you know, from all different angles, and, and I think that, like, you have to look at Netflix and say oh, that's they're 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 responsible for that conversation. So, yeah, I think that's partly why our Irishman has flourished uh, beyond you know the tribalism of the East Coast. On uh, you know, I think Uncut Gems. That's a very New York movie, and they won so our our best director uh, prize at New York Film Critics Circle, Josh and Ben Safty. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm curious then what the LA movie is.
0: I would have thought it would be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but mm-hmm. I'm looking at the LA Film Critics. Oh wait, no, it won Production Design, which mm-hmm. you know is incredibly well deserved. Um, but that might also be a, a fact of it being kind of a – I keep referring to It and the Irishman as 800-pound gorillas in the race this year. Like, they're these huge, um, you know, not studio-backed, but, like, well-financed movies by big auteur directors. So you can imagine Lafka, the, the LA critics, like, wanting to go in for Parasite or giving Best Actress to Mary Kate Place and Diane. Like, they, I think, do an especially good job of really picking some underdogs to champion. Yeah, for yeah, sure. It seems, it seems like Parasite is their movie, like, right? That, yeah,
2: Parasite that's kind of the... swept that's the lafka consensus so it's interesting yeah. did that uh,
0: surprise any of you guys
5: what it makes me think about is that if you think about tiered balloting at the oscars maybe you have a once upon a time in hollywood crowd and a Irishman crowd maybe it's coastal maybe it's not but maybe everyone's number two is Parasite and then Parasite wins
1: Yeah, I think I was kind of concerned too like up until this point that Parasite was kind of so feverishly praised that people were going to kind of overlook it when it should be the obvious no brainer and seeing the way that the LA um, film critics rewarded it made me like really really galvanized again for that movie
2: yeah, no. I mean, I would have suspect. I would have expected it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's usually whatever that that LA film is that we talk about every year is usually one that I'm kind of like, oh okay, or not for me. But like, <laughs> this but, is but like, like intra California rivalry happening here. I know it's not a NorCal film, but but uh, <laughs> but Parasite. I mean, yeah, let's all get behind it. Anything. To make it not be the Irishman? No, I mean <laughs> <It's fine>. um, <laughs> I just need to voice my my dissent. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 interesting uh, to watch these various uh, little like the momentum that's building around these various critics awards I don't feel like it's a clear consistent arc the way we've seen in years past where like one person maybe other than Laura Dern is just like really sailing because I would have thought Adam Driver would be sailing through at this point and that's not the case Mm -hmm. and so um yeah
0: yeah Yeah, the whole idea of best actor being down to Joaquin Phoenix and Adam Driver like that's what we'd been assuming for so long but it does feel like if Adam Driver was going to be the big contender that the critics will be lining up behind him. But like is Joaquin Phoenix the front runner? Like I don't I, I know the best actor is crowded and there's a lot of contenders, but I don't fully know what to make of the the rankings at this point.
2: I mean, he's still sort of like he still seems Adam driver still seems ahead of everyone. Um, if you want to put it
0: that way, you think he's but, ahead of Joaquin Phoenix?
2: Yeah, I do. I do. But like, I don't know by what metric, but, uh, but I like that Antonio Banderas and and Adam Sandler are sort of like in that, in that conversation more than they were even a week or two ago, um, because those are great performances and we should just talk about all the performances and not just like sign that category off and, you know, seal it in an envelope and, and move on, you know?
0: So. Well, Antonio Banderas is the one who by, he won New York and Los Angeles, which is, uh, I think he's the only actor to win both. Um, and that's one of those things where like by winning both of those things, he like felt one, like one of those like eight actors who was maybe on the cusp of making the list. And now it feels like he's solidly in, which is an amazing effect that the critics awards can have.
5: Yeah, and it's this interesting thing where I feel like in in recent years, maybe it's just because I've been paying closer attention, but it seems like there are two very distinct competitions: one to win the best actor or actress Oscar, the other to get nominated, and they have to follow very different criteria in a way. And like I think for like Banderas um, or you know Lupinanga who won at New York Film Critics uh, or Mary Kay Place who won at LA, like like the victory there would be the nomination and that's what you campaign for that. That's what gives your movie attention because like the, then the the membrane you have to pass through to win is a very different kind of thing. Um, and and maybe I'm thinking more like best picture in best picture terms, like, like green book won best picture last year. It hadn't won any critics prizes, you know, and, and it, it did well at the golden globes. And so you look at a movie like Joker, which didn't win in really many critics prizes and now is nominated for a bunch of things at the golden globes. Like, I don't know. I feel like they're just two different paths that sometimes intersect and it only happens at nominations and really rarely with winners.
1: Yeah, that's how I feel now when I think about Richard Jewell. I'm like, okay, it's not really doing super well with critics. I, I mean, I don't know. Actually, I haven't been paying attention to all the nominations that it's been receiving, but it's one of those movies that might just pop up with the Academy and get so many more nominations than I thought. So, yeah, so I'm kind of looking at that movie in that way, too.
5: It's also arriving late, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and Eastwood loves that kind of like December surprise kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I think the strong showing for Kathy Bates and various bodies, you know, bodes well for her. Will she be the lone representative of that movie or is more to come uh, the way it certainly was for American Sniper, but not the mule? I don't know.
1: hmm.
0: Yeah, Kathy Bates in particular is something, and we we're recording this, we should say, before the SAG Awards are announced, uh, the nominations are announced on Thursday, so you're probably listening to this after, we haven't seen them yet. Um, I feel like if Kathy Bates shows up at the SAG Awards, it's going to be like, okay, this is happening, because supporting actress is uh, kind of Jennifer Lopez and Laura Dern, and then a lot of flexibility beyond that, and it feels very easy for something like Kathy Bates to sneak in and change it.
1: But speaking of JLo, I was really glad to see that LA gave her the best supporting Um, Actress Award, because I was kind of getting worried that Laura Dern is just going to have this nice, easy stroll all the way to the Oscars. But J-Lo is just so good in Hustlers and is like my personal favorite. So it was nice to see her get that award. Is there anyone else who popped
0: up in these Critics Awards? I mean, maybe we should just talk about Lupita Nyong'o, who won the Best Actress Prize in New York Film Critics Circle. Like that, that was the one I think I said on last week's show, like I was so curious about who would win Actress from the Critics, because... Renee Zellweger didn't seem like a likely one. Um, I didn't predict Lupita as the one who would come through, but as soon as it was announced, I was like, oh, my God, yeah, of course. Um, she was a runner-up for LA Film Critics as well. She didn't get a Golden Globe nomination, so then the question is, like, if that momentum is going to keep going. But uh, that was one where I was really cheering for a potential surge there.
1: Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to see her win. And it also made me think a lot about the, the- – release placement of us because, you know, Get Out was such a freak of nature and that it came out so early in the year and it had that momentum to keep it going for the rest of the year to sweep all those awards or to sweep, you know, get best screenplay and um, you know, a best picture nomination and all the other nominations that it got. But it made me wonder if us had come out later in the year, if it had come closer to like typical award season placement, would Lupita be higher up in these conversations? Yeah. I'm not sure because it's so genre still, but you know, there's clearly a lot of love for her with critics, so.
0: I mean, Us made $175 million domestic, so I guess they were pretty happy with the decision to release <laughs> right. it when they did. Right. But I know, but it, that's exactly right, because Us was, uh, because Get Out was such a huge phenomenon that it was like, oh my God, I guess it does have to be an Oscar thing. And Us came in with different expectations because of how well Get Out did. Um, but it did feel like Lapita had to, like, retreat from the conversation and then come running back to be like, hey, wait a second. This performance is stacked up with in anything anyone else has done this year
2: because like when when us came out that was i I feel like lupita was the first performer even like uh, of the entire year that people were like okay oscar right but yeah Mm -hmm. it did feel too early and i was like you're not going to be saying oscar for like (laughs) this many more months you're going to forget um but i am glad that people seem to remember that earlier discussion because i think it's very oriented um and yeah it's it's interesting to me because i feel like the expectations really set us up for like a bigger open, you know, the, the story is it, it was an even bigger opening than get out. Oh my God. But I was like, yeah, but it's, does it have the, the durability that get, get out had in our conversation that, that, uh, idea of when get out came out, it was like, discovered over and over and over and over again by people when it hit streaming it was discovered something that kept the conversation a little bit livelier throughout the year um versus us had this like huge um splashy debut and then like faded a bit so yeah i'm thrilled i'm thrilled Lapita's back in the conversation i would love to see her um get that nomination for sure
0: as I, um, I'm, I pulled up a list of the Critics' Choice nominees on Hollywood Reporter, which is just crammed with us ads, with Lapita's like, giant face at the very top, like, uh, with, like, tears running down her face. It's a very uh, well-timed ad push for them to, to push her out there. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical
2: script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to
0: Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Um, Should we talk about the Critics' Choice Award nominations? Uh, Joanna, all of our choices got nominated, obviously. This massive group that we vote in uh, followed all of our instructions, right? (laughs)
2: Not quite, but you know, we got some, there's some stuff in there that's, that's exciting. Antonio, Antonio's in there for best actor. Um, so, you know, and, and Adam Sandler, like our, our, the critic, the beauty of the Critics' Choice Awards is that the categories are long. Uh, in terms of number of nominees and then we've got like a bunch of random you know there's like best comedy and best like whatever so there's a lot of opportunity I-, I find when I'm nominating for that is I play this like weird game of calculus right where like if there's a comedy I really love that maybe I would love to see it in best picture but I don't know that it has a chance I'm like well but I can get it down here in best comedy or something like that yeah. so uh, yeah it's it's a mathematical problem
0: to solve yeah uh, it was when- nice to get Dolomite is my name nominated in there somewhere in the comedy category though I couldn't get Dave I Randolph which, um, you know, I did my best. (laughs) We tried. Uh, I got Ad Astra in for visual effects. Like I nominated Ad Astra in a bunch of categories. I was like, okay, we'll see. (laughs) This will probably go nowhere. But it got somewhere so I could uh, rest on that.
1: I think one of my main takeaways when I was looking at the list is Jojo Rabbit, which I still haven't seen. Sorry, sorry. It's like weirdly consistent in all of these circles. I realize it's tied with Parasite for seven nods. How is this happening? I haven't seen it so I can't I can't argue against or for it. But yeah, it's it's been one of like the creep well, it's just creeping I... along consistently there.
2: I think that's because of the young actor slash actress category in the Critics' Choice, where they have three nominations for Jojo Rabbit. (laughs) They really really (laughs) stacked the deck in that one category. If you think about kid nominees, you are like, oh, there is so many in Jojo Rabbit. I'll just, I, I I had a wider spread, but that's okay.
0: Uh, You know, listen, I all three of those: uh, Roman Griffin Davis who plays Jojo, Thomas McKenzie who uh, I also nominated in this category last year for Leave No Trace, and then Archie Yates who plays like Jojo's friend. Um, I think they're all worthy nominees. Yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Bring them all in there, but that that is our. Artificially, I think, boosted. That's sort of J- JoJo's numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's my like, mystery it's is like, solved.
5: Uh, it's like our president buying all the bulk copies of his son's book, so uh, <laughs> so it gets on the bestseller list. Um, but I think one thing you know about JoJo that's interesting—and I know you you already spoke about Golden Globes, so I won't go too long on this. But like, is the fact that the kid got nominated for actor at Golden Globes? That feels like something of a canary in the coal mine sort of situation where, like, I feel like that movie has been lying dormant after winning a huge audience prize at the biggest film festival of the fall and is going to rear its head in a more significant way uh, once the globes come, Colin.
0: Yeah, the JoJo is kind of a puzzle at this point because it's like Bombshell or like 1917 is something that feels like a strong contender but wouldn't necessarily get a lot of critics' awards. So, you know, the Critics' Choice Awards can tend to include a lot of things, so it makes room for that. Like, it makes sense that they didn't get anything from New York Film Critics. Um, I guess SAG, like if Scarlett Johansson gets that supporting nod, like if it gets an ensemble prize from SAG, that's when we start really knowing to take it more seriously.
2: I mean, I think what the lesson I learned from Green Book last year. Is do not brush off any jury prize winner, you know, audience award winner from TIFF, right? Yes, like, definitely. To, to your detriment. Uh, don't look foolish again and do that. So I've always like had this question mark by Jojo of like, is it going to come back? Is it, is it going to Green Book its way back? But I feel like there's a difference between the way that Jojo Rabbit was received when it was released versus Green Book. You know what I mean? I feel like and, and maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like when Green Book was released, I know it was like a slow burn at the box office and people were like sort of, it, it had long, long legs in terms of the money that I got at the box office, but I feel like Green Book was a movie that people saw for longer and talked about longer. And I feel like JoJo, though it was, you know, somewhat popular it's not something that i feel like people continue to talk about in any meaningful way maybe it needs a controversy in order like a bigger controversy in order to like keep it in the conversation i don't know is that is that strike anyone the the same way
5: well yeah certainly you know the green book box office was slower than i thought it was going to be but it eventually did make you know a respectable amount of money but jojo had kind of petered out you know at like 24 million you know uh, which is good for a, a you know a movie that costs half that but like I think it maybe needed a little bit more sort of zeitgeisty fire behind it um but you know that hasn't always stopped voting bodies before um you know I I I wonder in some ways how much the box office metric or as a kind of way to to assess a a, a, you know kind of populist awards movies chances kind of gets diluted some when you have big netflix movies for whom none of that data is available and so there's not really a comparative thing to be like that's the populist movie of the year well we don't know because we don't know how many people watched irishman you know Mm -hmm. um so i wonder how effective that tool is going forward
0: well, and even if you look at, you know, I'm looking at box office mojo for them this weekend. I'm still using it, despite the fact that it's terrible. I don't know how to change my habits. Um, but Jojo uh, uh, Rabbit has made a uh, slightly less than Parasite at this point. It's made less than half of what Harriet has made, a movie we're talking mm-hmm. about way less, which is uh, possibly to our detriment. Cynthia Revo got the Golden Globe nomination. Um, so yeah, even just like in the numbers that we do have, like both we can judge like the Twitter conversation, which is how we know Marriage Story and Irishmen are getting seen by people, and box office, like it doesn't seem to be hitting any of the, the numbers that you Want
5: it to. Yeah. I mean, Harriet's definitely one that we should talk about more. Um, I think that I haven't spoken about it much. Uh, I didn't review it from Toronto. That was Cam um, Collins who gave it a pretty favorable review. I, I was a little bit less up on the movie when I saw it. But yeah, Arivo keeps popping up on these things. Um, she's an actor that everyone seems to be really rooting for. And and I think these nominations are bearing. I I was just upstate this past weekend with some friends, and all all most of whom are sort of like awardsy obsessed, kind of you know in in our industry. And. The kind of general feeling, one of them from our discussions over the weekend was like that, like she's definitely going to get in the five best actress nominees at the Oscars, which, uh, you know, I I think would be an interesting outcome. Uh, Yeah. And again, I know I just got done saying who know like, what does that actually mean? But like the box office for Harriet was really strong, um, which uh, maybe still counts for something.
1: Yeah, people really love it. She's really powerful in the movie, despite the movie being a little, you know, paint by numbers, whatever. I think that's why the movie itself isn't getting that buzz. But people do really like her. The movie did way better than I thought it was going to do. So it's connecting with people on that level. Um, So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either to see her pop up later. And she
5: has the song.
1: Yeah. You know, (laughs) so
5: like that kind of like that, that narrative of actor, singer you know that that's um true
1: multi-hyphenate that gives her
5: that a little extra rocket boost you know
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well
0: did so did you realize that uh, mary j blige was the first person to ever get an acting uh, nomination and a song nomination in in the same year and then lady gaga did it and now cynthia reba might do it like mary j blige opened the floodgates and now everyone has a song and an acting nomination at the same time well,
5: well they were the first women i was the first actor to do it <laughs> yeah
0: no yeah first for trolls right
5: right exactly
4: <laughs>
2: Um, And and I think if, um, you know, one of the reasons I haven't been talking about Harriet more is because, yeah, I I did feel like it was just kind of a, I like that sort of paint by numbers description of it. But I mean, I felt the same way about Judy, honestly. And so like, if, you know, if if we're talking about Renee Zellweger as like a great performance in an okay movie, then we should ter- certainly talk about Cynthia Revo in the same way.
0: Right?
1: Harriet has made much more than Judy. Yeah, and I mean that's where certain biases come into play, and you know she's also playing a Hollywood legend, so right. there's a lot of different things <laughs> yeah. that bolster. Well, <laughs> that yeah, and Cynthia Revo
0: is like is a rising star uh, more than you know Renee Zellweger, of course, more than Lupita Nyong'o, who's also an Oscar winner. Um, Cynthia Revo, like we are all rooting for, but you know. I can imagine there being plenty of Oscar voters who haven't heard of her because they didn't see widows to their great shame. Um, so you can imagine, like, that's that's one advantage that Judy has uh, over something like Harriet. But at a certain point, the box office makes it more of a contender no matter what.
5: Yeah, and one one last thing I'll say about these critics groups, uh, you know, from my perspective anyway is, and, and maybe it's a bit different for, for you guys because it's the voting is not, you know, in the room or whatever, but is... We really don't, and I and I I mean I don't want to speak for people in LAFCA, but because I, I don't, but I think they would agree with me that like we don't really view these Critics Awards as 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 sort of referenda on the Oscars, as 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 encouragement. You know, we're not trying to launch Oscar campaigns. Um, we just want to say that this is what we thought, and, and if it if it has that sort of uh, you know a f- side effect, great. But like, I think that we are choosing things in a different way. It, we're not trying to be predictive. Um, sure every every voting body including the academy is voting for what they're they want their group to give the thing to you know not yeah. what it how, what it says to another group so
0: i yeah. think it's just but one i think way you but at. you also by voting for the thing that you like you are saying this is worthy of higher recognition you know like it's, sure. it's part yes. of the same thing yeah
5: yeah yeah no it's a yeah it's a complicated kind of i mean I, you obviously can't shut all all of that uh, other stuff out of your head um but i think you try to um i just saw a lot of reaction on twitter being like why wouldn't you vote for this when they're clearly going to get nominated? And it's like mm-hmm. for an Oscar. And it's like, well, I, but like we're not the same. We're not related to one another. There's not a causality, yeah. really. Um, well, and,
2: and, and also, if anything, if anything, and I'm not saying you guys do this, but if anything, maybe that's a reason to not vote for someone. It's sort of like, OK, if they're going to get an Oscar, you know, if Adam Driver is going to get an Oscar, like, you know, maybe he doesn't need every single award this mm-hmm. fall, you know, something like that.
5: Right, exactly. Know. Like, and if Banderas gets through, you know, a great year uh, in his career with, like, prizes from the LA Film Critics Association, the New York Film Critics Circle, and various other groups like that, that's a pretty good run for, for a small, you know, foreign language movie. Uh, well, it's not really a, much of a foreign language in the United States, but, you know, I mean, like, it, like it's an Almodovar film. It's it like, if Banderas gets that kind of recognition, great, though Almodovar does have history at the Oscars, so we'll see how far he can take it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is something you see going to the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, uh, Richard, now you've gone many times, because um, the people know that they're going to win, they come like with their speech prepared, they get introduced by someone who is, you know, related to them somehow, um, and it feels like this big honor. It's really, it doesn't feel like some stop on the award circuit, though, of course it is. Like, I feel like being in the room for something like that, um, or even the Gotham Awards or anything else, you get to kind of watch how these awards do mean something, even if idiots like us sit here and be like, well, what does it mean for Oscar buzz?
5: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I they, look. It's all. It's obviously all part of an ecosystem. But these individual wins can be the, the you know, discrete enough triumphs on their own, which um, I think is a nice thing to to remember as these results come out and people kind of debate. Oh, what does it mean for this and that? And it's like, well, for w- in one in one instance, it means something really nice for that that person or yeah. that film.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, while there are lots of awards being handed out, there are also movies coming out, including some that we've been talking about for months uh, and are finally making their ways to theaters. Um, But the one that we haven't been talking about because the embargo didn't lift until very recently is Bombshell, um, which started screening in L.A. about a month ago. It's had a lot of buzz around it. Now people are finally talking about it. Um, Richard, you wrote the review of Bombshell for us. um, So do you want to kick off uh, what what does this Fox News drama mean for all of us?
5: Uh, yeah, it's a complicated thing. Uh, it was a complicated review to write. I mean, full disclosure, it's not quite done. One will record this, but it will be by the time the episode's up be- because it's, it's tricky because obviously the issue being spoken about in terms of sexual harassment in the workplace and beyond uh, is a worthy topic no matter where the thing is taking place, no matter who it's about. And, uh, you know, women like Gretchen Carlson uh, and Megyn Kelly, who were Fox anchors, and and another character played by Margot Robbie, who is kind of a a composite of various um, former Fox employees, they were really brave to speak out about this thing uh, that was, you know, went all the way to the top in terms of Roger Ailes. You know, so that's all worthy and interesting, and uh, the three actors, Robbie, Charlize Theron, um, and Nicole Kidman, you know, are really great in the movie. But... I don't know that the tone of the movie, which is directed by Jay Roach, written by Charles Randolph, really—I don't know. For me, it just feels like media gossip. And while the three lead actresses are really good and really do a lot to sell the emotional component of it, I kind of left feeling like maybe you know maybe it was the context in which I saw the movie or whatnot, but like it just felt like a little bit too like giddy and sort of fun and saucy and sort of sly for for a topic that like has a lot of implications for a lot of different things and is about a news network that I think is evil. So like, hmm. I don't know. It's it's tricky. It's a tricky movie and it seems to be quite polarizing thus far. Just kind of looking at the reviews that have already come out.
2: For me, um, you know, Katie and I were watching it almost like at the same time and messaging each other. I was like an hour. I would you never watching. second
0: screen a movie. What are you? How dare you? <laughs> um,
2: But, like, my initial reaction uh, that I messaged Katie was that this is a little, like, too vice for... my taste and I think that that has just been like a trend of um, you know ever since the big short I would say maybe before that that of like let's make this thing that could feel like too dense or too tough or whatever feel really zippy and fun and tonally for both Vice and uh, and Bombshell it hasn't really worked for me though there are good performances I think in both movies uh, especially in Bombshell but yeah I mean like I don't know why it works better for the big short for me maybe because it's not like a person we're sort of like really focusing on it's it's a a whole shady movement and so the 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 you know big shortification of that uh didn't like ring weirdly to me but for for vice and for bombshell the tone just felt really off
1: to me for sure yeah, that How about also- you, Johanna? Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say that was actually almost exactly my takeaway, too, was I walked away thinking, I enjoyed that more than vice, but it was a little too vice for my taste, too. And, yeah, it's such a thorny topic. I couldn't help but think about if I walked into that movie knowing nothing about Fox News, would I walk away just knowing that Roger Ailes was evil or would I know about the breadth of damage that Fox News has done to our political atmosphere? And I feel like the movie just kind of skirts past that just to get to the heart of the story which is about the sexual harassment case and you know it's so thorny because obviously they are so brave for doing what they did and and standing up to him and getting this horrible man um out of this establishment but at the same time we're not really addressing you know the politics of all of the women who are at the center of the story. And that was a big problem for me.
5: I think that, you know, and this is something I struggled with in, in writing my review, is that you never want to get into a conversation that's like, is something that happened to any of these women somehow less bad because they say bad things, you know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, no, obviously it's not. Like, like We, right, we, yeah. we, we understand that. But should there be a more a a fuller portraiture of megan kelly who spent a lot of time on the airwaves saying some pretty uh you know awful things um gretchen carlson maybe less so to some tiny extent but like also was kind of very complicit in a in a in a in a a, a whole kind of messaging apparatus for for fox news um and yeah you you just you, you kind of wonder like is this movie about Gretchen Carlson and Megan Kelly or some imagined version of them some maybe perhaps softened version of them is it about Fox News or is it just about harassment in a major cable news network you know which as we've seen with the morning show maybe doesn't always work i mean that's not cable but like but maybe I don't know. There's a part of me that, that thinks this movie could have gotten what it's trying to do across a bit more effectively had it fictionalized it like much further. You know, mm. we could all know, oh, it's sort of about Fox News, but when we have them by name and we also have in particular, in, in Tehran's case, her doing such a, a, a kind of uncanny impression of Megyn Kelly with um, some fantastic makeup artist, artistry uh, helping her. It's like, it, it it it's an overused phrase at this point, but it enters that kind of uncanny valley phase where you're like, it's sort of like the real thing, but I know enough about the real thing that this feels off, and so you just kind of end up like leaving the theater, being, or at least I did, being like, what was that for? Like, what was I supposed to feel? Um, I I don't know. It's kind of a confusing movie in that way.
0: Well, you get you start off with showing her in the um, you know the Donald Trump debate that kind of catapulted her onto the national stage in the way that she hadn't been before, and I think it sets her up as kind of a. Uh Uh, an iconoclast within Fox like someone who's kind of like not willing to take instructions and you know it's interesting for character development but then you get to the end of it like for this movie to to deal with Donald Trump in any way like he's seen on screen in archival footage um, but not really deal with Trump or Fox's relationship with him which is so complex and ongoing like it's not germane to the movie but they kind of make it that way by making it part of the story and it's like they knew they had to put it in there Um, and the same with like Megyn Kelly's whole thing about Santa being white like they show protesting black Santas because like they knew they had to acknowledge it but didn't totally know what to make of it Um, it it just feels like it was maybe almost too soon to make a movie about all of this stuff because the the historical record is still so much being written on it but it's not like they could avoid it so they kind of half acknowledged it and half left it alone
2: I think that's the other thing the thing with um, to go back to my convoluted thesis the thing with the the big short is that yeah, we're not dealing with figures that we are intimately familiar with unless you're, like, in you know, closely... Con- yes, there are real figures in that story, but we, the common moviegoer, um, the uneducated, like, in that realm of, of whatever, <laughs> don't know who those people are versus if you're watching a vice or if you're watching this, you're just sort of like... What it's odd. It's like watching Beach Blanket Babylon. I don't know if you guys know what that is. That's like a drag show in San Francisco. It's like watching these people in drag of like very famous figures, and it all feels too soon. It certainly feels too soon for there to be like comedy around it. And the I think the most successful story. I really love Nicole Kidman's performance, but I think the most successful story within Bombshell belongs to Margot Robbie because she is a made up like composite character. And so not someone that we have these preconceived notions around and is trying to do an imitation sort of of someone, you know, I think that's why that story lands the best for me.
0: Yeah, she and Kate McKinnon have like some really good scenes together that feel like they're not quite in this movie, but I really enjoyed watching them together.
1: Yeah, but even so, with Margot Robbie's character, I just as I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, she's she's likable, Tommy Lahren. Like I, I couldn't <laughs> help but like try to make analogs <laughs> to sure. the real world because of what the movie was. Um, but she's yeah, she's really good, and she has that devastating scene that really just brings her performance home. Um, the one yeah. with John Lithgow as Roderio. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was also going to say, I mean, I was also curious why. Gretchen Carlson's story isn't more of the driving force because it really is the Megyn Kelly show and I don't know if that's just because Charlize Theron is the one who wanted to make this movie and that's who she was going to play so it becomes the Megyn Kelly story but I thought that was that was really interesting as I was walking out. I wanted to know a little bit more about Gretchen's fight in a way. Right because yeah. it,
5: it, it the movie begins and she's already kind of she's waiting for someone else to say something because she Carlson did speak out about it before it I mean when it was really like c- career wise unsafe to do so and yeah and and she kind of gets gets backburnered a bit and i you know i I think maybe it's because well the, the theron thing obviously, but also like the fact that Kelly just had this other big notable kind of melt not meltdown but just sort of like disaster happened on nBC where her show was a completely you know a bomb and um and so maybe she's just more in viewers' audience's heads is sure. is, is the yeah. kind of arithmetic they're doing. But also,
0: um, Gretchen Carlson signed an NDA as part of her lawsuit, which you right. see. Well, in the movie. there you go. Um, yeah. So she she's been doing interview. I interviewed her a couple months ago for this project she's doing on Lifetime, uh, and she's talked about how she can't say anything, and she's actually like spent a lot of time campaigning against those kinds of NDAs uh, with settling sexual harassment lawsuits. So anyway, I think that's probably part of it is that they
1: don't know as much as they want to about what happened to Gretchen Carlson.
5: Yeah,
1: true. It's also. I mean, it's been interesting too to see how Charlize Theron. Uh, goes about campaigning for herself and the way that she talks about Megyn Kelly. Um, because yeah. she didn't talk to Megyn before making this movie, right? Like, they've never mm-hmm. met. They've never spoken to each other. So Megyn is still a mystery to her, and she has to kind of not defend her, but sort of humanize her and talk about her in this careful way so as to get herself in the award circuit. I don't know. That's been, like, a really fascinating dance to watch on this circuit.
5: And I think that, that in in some ways the movie does propose that interesting challenge which is how unwilling should anyone be to see anyone humanized you know because they are human beings and they do have their own sort of wants and fears and all that stuff like that I think when you run into a movie like Bombshell what you're reminded of is like well it seems to be a certain kind of person over and over again who gets the humanization and a lot of other people who don't you know, or it's a lot rarer. Um, And, you know, um, you know, I I don't know. I don't know really how to talk about this without sort of stepping into 18 different potholes. But like, I just think that movie is like a kind of a jumble of little landmines that it kind of finds its way around. But then the viewer is kind of left in the middle of them being like, I don't what, what, how do I talk about this? How do I think about this? Because it, you know, because I, and then the easiest way through is just to be like, it was entertaining. And I don't know if a movie like this should be as entertaining as it is. You know, it right. it feels like a little kind of comedy thriller that with, yeah, with that kind of Adam McKay pizzazz added in. Um, and that just feels like a weird cinematic language to use for a story like this. So I don't know. It's a it's a it's a real jumble of a movie. And if any of you want to finish writing my review for me, I would be very
1: grateful <laughs>
0: because I don't know what to do. I mean, it is entertaining. Like I as I was watching it, like I don't hate this movie i think because it's in a different way than vice like i think it's got some ideas it doesn't necessarily complete entirely like it does have moments of humor that really land like all the fox news cameos are ridiculous but i do think that's kind of part of the point like richard kind is rudy giuliani he's just brought me massive amounts of joy for how insane that performance is insane and accurate um so it's not like, like i would recommend it to people even though it's it tri- tripped you up in all these ways you're describing richard
5: yeah, well and I on that front, uh, Katie, Joanne, uh Alana Ubach as Janine Paper. Oh my god. That's my fucking favorite. Amazing. <laughs> I <laughs> want the whole movie of her. Yeah.
1: She was so good. I was sad that there wasn't more of her because she was so excellent. I was literally looking it up because I was yeah. like, Who played yeah. Janine again? Yeah. Oh, I got she was amazing. So excited when Alana
2: Eubach showed up. I was like, Oh, it's an Alana ubach joint. Okay. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, and and that
2: whole montage of like all the uh, female on a personal on air personalities at Fox like giving denials while being sort of like fitted into their tiny dresses like there is there is a good movie in here somewhere you know what I mean and uh, and uh, yeah I I think I think I would recommend it as well yeah despite everything I said and, and I really I- yeah, I really love Nicole Kimmons' performance in it. I really do. Um, and she gets I, to making, be
0: on screen with Robin Weigert again. Uh, big little yeah. Uh, yeah, always a good that. time. <laughs> yeah,
2: but Charlize, like, I don't know. There's just something about the voice, or I don't know what it is that it's like. I can't access the the actual human performance in the inside the impression. You know.
5: Yeah, and I don't know. As we talk about it, I'm I, the more I'm thinking like, well, maybe it's okay that I don't know who this is for like maybe every movie we don't need to know who a movie you know um but like i have a suspicion of who will get the most out of it and i don't know if it's the people who should i don't know it just feels like um i don't know again it feels like i just read like some like page six tell all or something and and i don't know that like that has much instructive value but uh, i don't know (laughs) I'm not dissuading people from seeing it. It's just like a weird movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, Uh, maybe people who watch Fox News will see it and become persuaded by something. But I don't know if this movie will reach out to them. Yeah,
5: that's a a pretty thick tinfoil (laughs) helmet to get through. (laughs) Hey,
1: I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair.
0: Uh, should we pivot to something that everyone can agree on which is Uncut Gems? Oh, please, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I mean we've talked about it some on and off uh, and Richard I think you talked about it last week as the thing that uh, emerged for you as a favorite really late in the season um, but uh, I don't know Johanna I feel like I know less about your specific feelings on Uncut Gems so why why should non-New
1: Yorkers jump on board this extremely <laughs> New York movie? Um, because New York is the best and it's like an instantly <laughs> iconic New York movie. It's just so great and I'm I'm someone who I wasn't terribly on board with good time there were some issues for me with that movie so i was curious about uncut gems but just watching it i was thrilled for you know the two hours and 12 minutes however long it is adam sandler is excellent it's like instantly one of his career best performances um and the supporting cast is great kevin garnett can really act i had no idea as i'm (laughs) non-basketball knowing individual he's 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 really fun and funny in the movie um and it's overall it's just it's just really thrilling
5: yeah, Julia Fox too is wonderful as as uh, the lead character's mistress, and I think the incredible thing about Sandler's performance and and the Safdie brothers' direction uh is that it just never stops, you know, and yet it doesn't become grating in a way that for me, I don't know about if you agree, Johanna, Good Time Did. Like I mm-hmm. that movie kind of just was like, Ugh, why did I sit it's, through that, you know? It's
1: tougher. It's so much tougher. And there yeah, there are just some elements of that movie that that I really struggled with. Um but yeah with Uncut Jumps, there was a real devotion to dramaturgical storytelling in a way that I was really impressed by. There was no detail that wasn't followed up on later. There was no little character trait that wasn't um, used later. So I was really, really impressed by that. And I think that's what helped it feel not just like relentlessly thrilling for, you know, the hell of it just to get people to sit in the audience and be stressed out for more than 2 hours. There's they they pay off everything and you can kind of you walk away realizing why they wanted to make this movie for so so long. Like they got everything they needed and they made the movie that um, they wanted to make, which is crazy because they are so young. For them to make something that is like ostensibly going to be one of their best movies for years to come, not sure, can't predict the future, but yeah. No, we have they, a long standing rivalry with people younger than us on this show, so <laughs> you're, in, you're in the right place. It's very <laughs> offensive to me that
2: they're so young. <laughs> yeah, and I, Sandler's performance, for me, I mean, they're. This film gave me a lot of anxiety, but like was trying to. So, good job, film. Um, but uh, Sandler's performance is incredible. I love Adina's performance in this as well. Adina she's Menzel. Amazing. What a
1: fall she's, she's having. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm just um, so curious. What was her journey to this movie? Do you think that she knew who the Safties were?
5: Well, my understanding is that she auditioned for it, they liked her audition, they cast her, and then while filming, the Safties were like, oh, wait, is she like a big deal? And like someone, on, someone on the crew was like, yeah, she's like a theater legend. I, I, that was what I heard, I think, from like a and a at Toronto or something. Uh, I'm not sure, but that, it, please correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is something along those lines of like, they just had no idea that she's this like icon of, for a number of people.
1: That's incredible. That's not what I would have guessed yeah. <laughs> at yeah, all. I thought that, you know, the Sandler of it all, like her agent would have been like, OK, yeah, there's this movie. Like, maybe you do it. And she's like, I don't know who they are, but the script is funny. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's just Frozen bias, though, too. <laughs> I wouldn't have expected her to say <laughs> yes to something like this.
0: The fact that she has a Christmas album out this fall, in addition to Ug Head <laughs> and Frozen, just like brings me endless joy.
1: <laughs> We love the choices she's making. But yeah, she's <laughs> I've swung. also been
0: thinking about her fitting into her bat mitzvah dress like every day <laughs> since I saw this movie. <laughs>
1: I mean, I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie, too... Can we get too deep? Sure. Well, there's just one scene where she's in the kitchen, Adam Sandler's getting on her nerves, and then her daughter walks into the kitchen, and they just make that mother-daughter eye contact that was so relatable, so deeply relatable. I was like, how did they know about this connection? And
5: I think that that's something that that I found so surprising about the movie compared to Good Time um, and and their first film is, is there's a real humanity there that, I think Good Times sort of tried to get toward toward the end of that film, but m- maybe did it a bit inelegantly. But in Uncut Gems, like there 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 are moments like that where they extend their, you know, these these young men extend their their thinking beyond the this their, their sort of id like hero, um, and I think that's really appreciated. I, I love the way that Julia Fox's character arc takes shape because um, I think you, at first you think she's just going to be this you know, kind of Goodfellas extra, mm. m- you know, mistress joke, and then she's really not. Um, mm-hmm. And I think another interesting thing about the film, you know, in in the way that it starts very far afield of the Diamond District of Manhattan, is that there is a kind of there is a political point to the movie that, uh, uh, you know, about what these kind of people are essentially scrambling on the backs of, like who who they who they are. Kind of tromping all over in order just to do these you know these kind of petty things. and and that's that I like I like that that sort of depth of inquiry, even if it's not you know a huge part of the film. it It's definitely there in this kind of bookending thing that you know was surprising uh, and and I really appreciated.
0: Yeah, there's something to the ugliness of the world it takes place in, like how horrible the offices are and all these like cramped Diamond District streets, like in the service of beautiful gems that are also made ugly with what they want to make of it. And that seems like some, like the Safdies are kind of drawn to ugliness in that way, like this like cramped New York ugliness. Um, but you're right that there's like a point to it, the way that they open the film and like, you know, emphasize that to uh, to make it more than just kind of reveling in awfulness. Mm hmm. And then finally, out this week in limited release, um, Terrence Malick is a new movie that feels like it's a little bit quiet uh, in all this awards conversation, given that it's Terrence Malick. Um, but it's also, you know, a quiet war epic about a guy who doesn't go to war. Um, I haven't seen it, but Richard and Johanna, you guys have. So can you tell us about A Hidden Life?
5: Yeah, I saw it can. Uh, I have not seen it since, but it's you know I I I was sort of weaned on on Malick as a kid. My dad was a big fan of, of his earlier films, and so he made sure that I watched those, and, and then it sort of coincided with a Thin Red Line coming out um, in the '90s. You know, and the Thin Red Line was such a big thing for me as a teenager, uh, and then you know, New World was interesting, and Tree of Life was I, I thought quite good. And then he kind of, Malik just went off on this weird, like, just just twirl in the fields and we're not going to have really any plot. And, 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 you know, Tree of Life actually did have a plot. And so I was kind of like, oh, this is all just kind of, he's, he's stuck in this eddy of creative, you know, um, you know frustration or whatever. Um, so it's nice that in Hidden Life there is actually a story. It is based on a true person, who an Austrian um, conscientious objector, who did not uh, let himself be conscripted into the uh, Nazi army because uh, he had a religious objection to their ideology, and suffered greatly for it. And so, it has not only a plot, but it has, you know, in its heavy-handed but beautiful way, a real timely sense of purpose to it uh, in the here and now. Um, and and I, so I really appreciated that. I I'm a little surprised that it it has not made more of a mark on this season because you know when i saw it can i was like i mean yes the three hours is difficult but like past that like it feels very much like a story for our time um you know even if we can't all be as principled as this man was uh it it could in some senses be something to aspire to
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i was very moved by it um and i was also surprised that it's not part of the conversation more but i guess if if you're not you know knowledgeable and all the european actors on it they only draw draws malik and it's it's there's quiet buzz around it but yeah i found it very moving um i think that first hour of it is just so breathtaking there's a lot of beautiful stuff that happens and the ending is really moving and powerful i think for me you really start to get a little tired around that two hour mark um but you persevere because everything looks gorgeous in that movie um so I, I yeah, I liked it too, and I would recommend it to people yeah. set aside that three hours and and it's it's rel-
5: given the seriousness of the subject matter and the realness of the subject matter, it's relatively light on like Ladder Malik kind of bullshit. Where though there is one moment where Valerie Packner, uh, she plays the guy's wife, and Valerie Packner is great. She was in another movie that I put on my ten best of the year list called *The Ground Beneath My Feet*. But um, anyway, she uh, she said she's saying in voiceover, she's writing a letter to her imprisoned husband, mm-hmm. and she says, "The new hay brings me hope," and I actually laughed out loud in the can't screening room because <laughs> i was like oh come on malik right. <laughs> come on dude You're like, <laughs> like, pull it on back. Yeah, yeah there's a
1: yeah. lot of that yeah it's like that flowery letter writing yeah, was, back and forth that is yeah. when i started to get a little tired yeah. and i was like just just cut down on a little bit of this and then you have like a real surefire contender like if if everything had been tightened and i don't know maybe that's just Forcing Malik away from his Malikness, so that's not right to do. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why do you want to put his lead under a bushel? No, yeah, but there is there is that flowery letter writing where you're like, okay, do your thing.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I, but I I know I, I said this I think a few months ago, and I and I sort of still think it could be true, which is if we go to nine or ten Best Picture nominees, I would not be surprised to see it on there, and maybe it gets no other nomination. Hmm. But it lands there kind of in that weird, extremely loud and incredibly close slot or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, the Selma slot, you know, uh, th- those movies that like just for ha- somehow got like every, you know, enough votes for that top prize and then little else. I mean, I know Selma got another prize. But anyway, so I, I, I wouldn't rule it out just yet, but it's not the easiest of sales. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you
1: remember what the conversation was like out of Cannes where people high on it what happened
5: yeah i mean it was you know can is uh, a lot of self-serious you know international film journalists capital f film journalists um and so they were you know uh, hailing a masterpiece and you know and and I, I i know where they're coming from obviously that movie has a particular resonance in europe uh that it should have in the united states uh but maybe it's just it's a slightly different um but yeah i mean i think you know this this past year's can turned out to be incredible. If you think about the Tarantino, *Portrait of Light and Fire, Parasite and this. Uh, oh, Pain and Glory as well. Like it was a really yeah. good can, um, which, you know, in years past, it's been a little bit weak maybe. Um, but in, in a weird way, the big three-hour Terrence Malick movie about conscientious objection was the one that sort of faded the most out of the buzz. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe you're right, Johanna, it has to do with it doesn't have big name brand stars.
1: Yeah. But no, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really beautiful. And you're right. Like it is, the message is so resonant and like oddly, extremely contemporary. I think the movie is, the title is based on that George Eliot quote that they show. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to say the whole thing because I mean, there's nothing to give away because it's based on the true story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really beautiful.
0: Uh, and now we're going to share the interview that Julie Miller did with Greta Gerwig. They really got to go deep on Little Women. She talked about, like, how Sir Ronan basically demanded that she play Joe March, which is a very Joe March thing to do, as Greta pointed out. Uh, she talked about all the historical research she did about Louisa May Alcott. And then, um, I don't think it's a spoiler, but she kind of talked about how the ending of Little Women the movie is really different from Little Women the book and how she worked Louisa May Alcott's real life into that, which I found so moving when I saw it, um, and it's really interesting to hear her talk about it. So uh, if, I suggest listening to it, even if you haven't seen it, but... Uh, Anyway, take a listen to Julie Miller talking to Greta Gerwig.
3: So I'm here. I have the honor of sitting here with Greta Gerwig.
0: Yes.
4: <laughs> writer,
3: director of Little Women, which is so beautiful. Thank you. I really enjoyed the movie, and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Oh, good. At what point did this become a dream that you wanted to adapt? Yes. Well, in a funny way,
4: I've had this movie in my head since I was about seven but I had no concept that my life would go in a direction that would allow me to make it into a, a real movie. But it was a serendipitous really that I, I had reread the book as an adult in my thirties, and then um, in my early thirties, and then my agent, I had heard in passing that they were interested in making uh, little women again uh, at Sony, and I I said, I have to go talk to them. I have to write and direct this because I have an idea. And uh, I hadn't made Lady Bird at that point. So, but he set it up and I went in and I told them my idea. And uh, initially I was just tired to write it because I, I hadn't, I, because I hadn't directed anything. And then I wrote the draft. I think the first time that I have anything labeled on my computer about it is 2014. So it's been, it's been a while. <laughs>
3: So it's been adapted for the screen before, but I love the way you do it because you find a way to merge both Louisa May Alcott's story and also her real life. Mm. You mentioned having that idea around 2014. Was that the idea you were thinking of?
4: Well, there were sort of two ways that I was coming at it. The first one was that I wanted to start the film when they were adults. And the reason I wanted to start when they were adults is because I was an adult and because that was the part of the story that suddenly spoke to me in a way that it had never really resonated before and I thought well if I can start when they're adults all in their separate lives then childhood becomes this thing that they're yearning to get back to almost like a snow globe of the halcyon days gone by because they're figuring out how to capture that bravery and bigness and ambition they had in girlhood and connection with each other that they had in order to move forward. And so that, you know, the trick of it was, can we align what the characters want in terms of going back to childhood with what the audience wants, which is is going back to that um, that place and that time. And then the second thing was just how, the story of Louisa May Alcott, how uh, amazing she was, that I realized while I was researching it that Joe March had been this heroine of my youth, and then as I'm doing my due diligence that Louisa May Alcott became the heroine of my adulthood, which, which she did, that she wrote all this down. She took, made the lives of girls and women a bestseller. (laughs) And that was, you know, extraordinary. And there's all these ways in which Louisa May Alcott's life mirrors Joe, that she had three sisters and that she wanted to be a writer. But there's places where they diverge, most notably in Joe March gets married and has children and stops writing by the end of Little Women. And uh, Louisa May Alcott never got married, never had children and kept writing and owned her own copyright and became you know, one of the wealthiest self made women in America. And and that I, I I felt like there was a lot of a lot to explore there. And you know, when I came at it as a writer, I was always thinking of it as being as directing it because then I had so many ideas about how about narrative and about um signifiers in film and 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 the types of film we make and what are the what is the moment that we're looking for in a film and kind of the hat trick i wanted to pull off was what if you felt when she gets her book the way you generally feel about a girl getting kissed (laughs) um what what if what if we could figure out how to do that so that the writing is the thing so it's not girl gets boy it's girl gets book i love that so much that was the hope, so I'm hoping. <laughs> that's what it, But, but it, I, I felt like I had too many ideas, which is always a good sign that you have to make something, is when you have more ideas than you could possibly cram into a film.
3: Because Louisa May Alcott wrote this, I guess, almost 150 years ago? 150 years ago so when, when she was out? 36. My age. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. And so she couldn't put her life on the page because she had to meet sort of the publisher's expectations, audience expectations, and I love that you said that going back, researching her life, that you were able to kind of tease out maybe what she wanted to write and then what she ended up writing that she maybe didn't feel as much. How did you kind of commune with Louisa May Alcott (laughs) and figure out what that was? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) No, it
4: it was a long process. It had a lot of... um, I spent a lot of time with um, her letters and her journals and um, her other fiction and her mother's letters and her mother's journals and kind of the writing of the world she was in. And what I was looking to do was find the author all the way through the author of joe march the author of louise may alcott myself as an author search as an author of the, of the part of joe and 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 kind of what i was always looking for was this cubist intuitive emotional intellectual kaleidoscope of authorship and ownership of text and of character everything had to be multiple things it could not ever just be singular i had to have a multiplicity in in every moment every line um and then it had to go together in a way where you could just watch the movie straight through but um i felt like i was i was interested in um in breaking apart self that way for all the characters um so i was always uh, trying to jam everything as a writer and as a director f- full of m- more. <laughs> Another way of reading
3: it. And I love Jo's style. Uh, oh, she's played by Saoirse best. Ronan. She has this amazing and kind of look. It's just kind of free-flowing. What were the inspirations behind that? Well, there were a number of inspirations.
4: Um, I mean, I will say kind of the heart of Joe and Laurie as both being androgynous was something that was really interesting to me that Joe is a, Joe is a girl with a boy's name and Laurie is a boy with a girl's name and I have them switch clothes the whole film. Um, not so much to androgyny, but to, I suppose, um, people being people for all time. The photographs of Julia Margaret Cameron were a big inspiration for me in terms of The way all of these women looked, there are these fabulous photographs taken in the 1860s and 70s of um, mostly young women, and they look like they could have been taken yesterday. Uh, Sort of messy hair, people, girls in an environment looking... away from the camera not it's not that sort of um portraiture you think of in the then 1860s where it's very formal and they're all dressed up and they have that kind of greasy middle parted hair um which i th- think then you know that lo- that look becomes something that becomes imitated but these photographs they just they just are so alive it's these um it's these girls with real expressions. There's one in particular who has this very arrogant look on her face, which is um, pretty fabulous. Uh, and they're not wearing corsets and they're not wearing hoop skirts. They're very natural in their bodies. Um, and then there was another female photographer, actually, um, her name Lady Hawerton. and she was she would stage these kind of fabulous pictures where they were dressed up in uh, scenes from Classical theater, and uh, they're just very—they're very dynamic, and they make you when you look at these photographs of both of these people, that they, they, both of these women, you realize just how how much like people they were. They were—they were just, you know, they—they they, they are the most modern people they'd ever known, and I think that sometimes when you're making a, a period piece, it can all feel very polite, and. I wanted to find not not anachronism, but a way in which it, it didn't have to be polite because it certainly wasn't at the time.
3: Well, there's this quote I found of hers I was so interested. I am more than half persuaded that I'm a man's soul put by yeah. some freak of nature into, into a woman's, woman's body. body because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. Yep. What did you think when you read that? I'm very interested in
4: uh, in desires that don't have categories. Uh, I think it's a fascinating thing uh, that she expressed something like that so purely and didn't quite know what to make of it. I mean, it's not in in some ways it's not surprising that she said that. The character of Joe, which is in some ways her avatar, spends the entire book saying she wishes she had been born a boy. That's pretty clear in the book. No, I think that's a very rational thing to think because b- boys had actual options for their lives, which women didn't have. So why wouldn't you want to be a boy? You didn't have any options whatsoever if you're a girl. So sometimes I think we see things through the lens of today and we want to ascribe some category that may or may not be true what you do know is it, whatever she felt was not on um, was not on the menu, right. at that moment, and that was in all ways. Uh, and I think that that person who wrote that, that spikiness and that um, yearning, comes through all over the book. And I felt like I wanted to make a film that answered that. Actually Sersha told me she was going to play Joe. Oh really? Yes, she knew I was working on it and she said I know you're go- you're-, you're writing it. I know you're writing it and I I'm I'm, I'm going to play Joe. <laughs> and I said, "Oh." And then I said, "Well, let me think about it." And Then I wrote her back and I said, I thought about it. You, yes, you're Joe, <laughs> um, but so and and it felt like a very Joe thing to do. Right. In fact, to tell to kind of claim her space. And she told me later she's never done anything like that, and she's never done anything like that again. Um, and and it felt very similar, actually, to my going into Sony and telling them that they should hire me to write and direct this film when I'd never written and directed a film before alone in my life. It felt like the Joe slash Louisa was operating through both of us. I love that. Yeah. And what about Timothy? Oh, then Timothy, I mean, he was always Laurie. As soon as I knew, because I I knew I was going to be grounding them as adults and that that's where we were going to start, I was was also just having a moment of figuring out, like, what age do I want everyone? And what I decided on was kind of in the middle. I wanted, you know, 23-year-olds to play both down and up. If that makes sense, because you're going to play 17, then you're going to play 27 or whatever it was. So, as soon as I knew it was Sersh,a then I knew it was Timothy. Because Timothy, if it hadn't been Timothy, it was going to be someone who who had that that spirit. But it was it was always him, and um, he fits exactly. Um, I love him as an actor. I mean, they're both Sersh,a ex- so extraordinary and such a partner in filmmaking for me. And it's hard to overstate how much she is a partner in 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 what the movie ends up being um and then as uh, just timothy I, I i adore working with him he's wildly talented he's he's completely unexpected he's um a completely different energy as an actor than sersha but watching them together is extraordinary um and i just he just is he's beautiful and handsome and that's the same of sersh and um I love watching the two of them act.
3: How did you have the actors kind of get into character? Did you have them do any non-traditional exercises? or? Yeah, well, I had two weeks of rehearsal, which was wonderful. And we did use the two weeks of rehearsal
4: for a lot of just traditional rehearsal because I have them say everything very quickly. (laughs) Um, And very specifically, they overlap on very specific lines. And it took a while to get the rhythm built up of how they... um, of of how they handed off lines so it, we'd start slowly of of like and then you and then you cut her off here and then now you come in here now you're over here and then we would sort of slowly block the scenes and and al- almost um, almost like building a musical number and then we'd get we'd sort of get up to speed and then i wanted the lines memorized to the point where it was muscle memory that they didn't have to reach for any of the words. They were just right there and that they could do it backwards and forwards in their sleep because it was so complicated. So we did do a lot of traditional rehearsing, but then I had them all, I had them all like, um, perform for each other. I wanted them to do something that was close to what the pickwick club is for the the kids of, um, of, uh, pretending to be other people. So, um, Sing. They had to either sing a song, or do a monologue, or um, recite a poem. And it's funny because even though they're all actors, there is this embarrassment of performing for each other. But then it was so wonderful when they did it, and it was so uh, vulnerable for each other. And um, we did a lot of movement because I I think all of that kind of movement work and acting games, all of that just gets you out of your own way, and it makes you not try to appear cool in front of other people (laughs) and um and it 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 stops self-consciousness so uh, we did all of those kinds of things and then since I knew I I, you know I mean there's so many things I went to London to work with Jacqueline and then I had time to work with Sersha and um you know build the costumes and um and then we'd get her in an out we'd get her in a, a mock up of a costume i liked and then we'd take her down on the streets of london and see how she moved in it did she like it and that's when we decided we nixed the hoops i did not want to see her in a hoop and um but it was it was the, this luxury of time of being able to dedicate this time to to the the process of of building these characters and um and uh, yeah, loading everyone down with with books to read and making them watch films and all of that. What was it like to direct Meryl Streep? Oh, um... <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. She's Meryl Streep. Um, we talked about it a lot because the book had meant a great deal to her and, and she said she wanted to play Aunt March and that she wanted to be the battle axe, as she described her. And, um... And... The conversations I had with Meryl informed the script. There's a speech that Florence Pugh, as Amy, gives to Timothy Chalamet, as Laurie, where she says, "Here's the situation for me as a woman, and this is this is why marriage is this is is this question for me, and, and, and what I can and can't do as a woman." And that came directly out of a conversation I had with Meryl, where Meryl said the thing you have to make the audience understand is it's not just that women couldn't vote, which they couldn't. And it's not just that they couldn't have jobs, which they couldn't. Um, It's that they did not own anything. You could not own anything if you were married. Every single thing you owned was your husband, including your children. So you could leave a bad marriage, but you would leave with nothing not even your children so that's the stakes of who are you going to marry because it's so you you had no options and so I just essentially took that almost verbatim and gave it to Florence so directing Meryl is not um, a thing that only happens on set and it's not a thing that I'm doing to her it's getting to work with her makes me a better filmmaker because she is She's a comprehensive actress and a comprehensive
3: mind. She is not she's not Meryl Streep for nothing. <laughs> How did your relationship with Sertia and Timothy evolve on this movie? Timothy was fun because it was just a lot more that
4: we got to do and um I think in some ways he's closer to I I mean he's closer to Lori than he is to Kyle. <laughs> He's a kind of a hard on his sleep fella. Uh, yeah. which is very sweet. And he has um he has so much sweetness and, and, and I think, you know, the character of Kyle and Lady Bird didn't really have access to the more vulnerable parts of himself, I think, because he was hurting, which it's completely understandable. But one thing that I, I loved about Timothy and I wanted to capture in this movie is um his when he was nominated for everything and I'd see him at all these fancy places, but he'd often bring his sister, who's a wonderful actor and um, filmmaker, Pauline Chalamet, and he would bring her as a date and they were so sweet together and he was so lovely. He just, you know, he's, he, obviously it's his sister but also he's friends with her and he really likes her Mm -hmm. and there's something just so delightful about watching him with her and i was like well that's exactly how laurie feels about the march girls that they're like his sisters and um, he kind of wants to be a sister and also he loves them and i thought um was seeing him like that um that was very sweet and um and so he yeah he has that kind of that kind of openness and um with Saoirse she just I I mean her access to who Joe March was was total and I remember the day that it that it that it happened and that she that Joe March showed up through Saoirse to come play and it was extraordinary and I I, I feel like
3: um she always knew that it was in her do you believe in kind of connecting with people from beyond? Were there any weird experiences where you felt like <laughs> Louisa was on set? Well,
4: or? I mean, I, I think I have. <laughs> yeah, but I don't want to sound like a lunatic. <laughs> um, yes, I well, we were shooting in 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 Concord, Massachusetts, where she lived. Um, I mean, as I said, I'm 36. She was 36. um as a cast, you know, we all went to her, her um, we went to the house that she wrote, "Little Women in Orchard House. The, I mean, and I say that as if that's it, it's a 10 minute walk from where I was living. It, it's so it, everything is so right there. So we went to the house, we saw, we saw the desk she wrote "Little Women at." She, we saw her, her sister May um, drew on the walls. Um, who is the artist that Amy's based off of? You saw her book collection. You saw George Eliot, which is why I put George Eliot in the in the film, is what she's reading to her sister Beth. Um, you can walk twenty minutes one direction and you're at Walden Pond. So, I mean, right there, that's where Thoreau decided to set up shop and then you can go to Sleepy Hollow Cemetery and they're all buried there and people are leaving pens for Louisa at her grave to inspire them to write and to thank her for what she'd written. Um, You can walk 20 minutes the other way and you're at the North Bridge, which is where the Revolutionary War started. It's where the first first shots were, were fired on the British who had marched from Boston. And so when you're there you really get this sense of the, the, this is um this is a place where the idea of the imaginative act of democracy is was very present. It it was not a thing that had been done a long time ago it, it was right it was right then and and remaking the country better as 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 you know in order to form a more perfect union that that's forefront for everyone right and so Louisa feels present and I think everyone felt that but yeah going to Sleepy Hollow and and paying our respects was um I don't know that she was there but she was we we showed up for
3: her anyway Many readers would probably say Amy is their least favorite March sister be- because of the scene. So where underrated. She- <laughs> where the scene where she burns Joe's only copy of the manuscript. Yes. Do you have a least favorite March sister? um well no i love them all um no we can't play least
4: favorite that's like such a you're you're that's yeah, we we don't do that with children <laughs> you sound
3: what about sound, villain of the story no
4: there's no villain that's one of the marvelous things about this book is how complete all the people are and yet uh that they that they have a real goodness shining through them um but no, I do. I like the fact that Amy burns the manuscript. No, but then Joe decides to let Amy die in the ice. <laughs> so, so I think they're even. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I, I love, I love them. I love them all. I don't have a, a least favorite person. I think that, that there is this quality of that, of the book where you, you want to, you want to live inside of it and love, and you love all of them. and I love all of them Um, but I think Amy has always gotten short shrift in everybody's imagination she's very fascinating and that was like one of the things especially in the second half of the book when she's in Europe and her entire discussion with herself about I want to be great or nothing uh, which is a line from the book and she's figuring out whether or not she can be a painter is just really fascinating and... So much more complex than I think she's been given credit for. And she, her, uh, some of the things she says are great. I mean, she has the line, I don't pretend to be wise, but I am observant, which, holy shit, that's a great line. And then she also says, the world is hard on ambitious girls. And I think the world's still hard on ambitious girls, Amy. And she comes to this conclusion that she wants to, with Laurie, found- oh, basically open a open a foundation for ambitious women. <laughs> no, I mean she walk- There's this amazing scene, which you know you don't have all the space in the world to do stuff with. To, to you know, I had to make choices, but she's walking through um, the house, the, the the house that Lori lived in, and she's like, I. They're just talking about what they want to do with this big house and with all his money, and she said, support women who want. To, 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 be, to be big, who wanna be artists, who wanna, and, you know, and they're fantasizing about how they're gonna do that. And I just think it's, um, I just think she's much cooler than anyone, anyone, uh, anyone
3: has acknowledged. <laughs> uh, you said that you've wanted to direct the story in some way since you were seven, maybe somewhere deep inside, unformed, yeah. that intention. When you finally got to set, what was the most emotional scene to film? Oh God, I feel like every day was very emotional because every day was, um,
4: there was no day that wasn't huge in terms of what, I, what was being required of the actors, emotionally, what was being required of every single department. Oh my God, my production designer, Jess Goncher is an incredible and he killed himself for this. There's so many sets and so much life. Um, and my DP I mean the whole thing was every day was immense um but it felt very emotional for me in a number of ways but um photographing the printing of the book was very emotional and there were all these people in Massachusetts they'd found who had the um printing press the the stuff that you would make a book with in 1868 and we were going to photograph that and then we photographed Sertia watching and um, and Jess had made the uh, made the set where she's watching through a window, and I realized when he showed me the model of the set he was going to build, and I said, "Jess, you've made a maternity ward," and he said, "Oh, I didn't even think of that." And I was like, "That's how much the f- funny, amazing mind melds that happens on movie sets had happened because." Of the- the thing that Louisa said is that Joe should have been a literary spinster with books for children. And so that idea had seeped itself so deeply into what everyone was doing that when Jess made this set, he made a maternity ward and she's looking through the window at her baby being made. And then they come out and hand it to her, like nurses come out and hand a baby to a mother I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe it it was like I was I mean you know it was extraordinary and then so then we film Saoirse's face and I'm playing Patty Smith um, I'm playing Gloria um, because Patty Smith loved loved Louise May Alcott and loved Joe and I always say Patti Smith does not love this book because Joe marries is Professor Bear. That's not why. <laughs> and when we were in production, Patti Smith actually published an essay that was printed in the Paris Review about why she loves little women so much and why Joe March was her character. So I'm playing Patti Smith, and Saoirse watching this book being made, and she just gets this look of... Humility and pride and 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 gratitude and arrogance all at once on her face. And I was like, holy shit, you just did it all. And it was the last thing we shot, I think, one of the very last things we shot. And it was the last thing of the movie, and it's it was the last thing we shot. And it felt like so many different elements coming together in this one moment. And um, I don't think I'd be able to do what I did if Louisa hadn't made this written this book i know maybe there would someone else would have written something but but she made it possible for so many people um so many different women artists and uh and i anyway i had that very surreal moment as she was given her book baby and we were all standing there
3: Mimo, you were pregnant and, and I was pregnant. <laughs> and I think I read that after cutting the film, hours after cutting mm. the film, you went into labor. Actually, I feel like this has gotten shortened. It wasn't oh, oh. it
4: wasn't hour I mean it was it was within hour it was like forty eight hours, but okay. it wasn't like two hours after I finished cutting the film. No, I did finish cutting the film though and um uh, well, well I, had a, I, sh- I showed the studio my cut of the film, and then I, get, uh, then I went into labor 48 hours later, which I kind of had a sense that I was going to because I thought, well, everything will finish at once. Uh, but then after that, I've, I still had more work to do. It wasn't a completed
3: film, it was, but it was, um, it was a pretty good draft. But still, what do you make of all these coincidences? I don't know, man. I don't know.
4: <laughs> I don't know. No, it's a. I. I think. Um, I think. I think there are. Have, were so many coincidences, and I also seek them out. Um, because I making any art at all is a very scary proposition. Um, and and also completely joyful. And it. Um, but I think. I think because. Um, you're always looking for signs that it, you're meant to do it, um, because it's a real privilege to make films, and I and I, I hope to make films that um, touch people or connect with people in some way, and um, and 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 I hope I'm 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 up to it and worthy of it, and I'm the right person for the job. So I think I'm always looking for um, little signs that I that I'm allowed, <laughs> but I'm, um, I'm a goofy thinker. <laughs> well,
3: I love that after
4: this, you're making the Barbie movie. Well, we don't know yet. That's, oh, that's okay, early okay. days. That so we, day. no, we don't know. What I do know is, <laughs> um, I, I'm, I am writing it, but right. I also know I'm in a, Um, I'm acting actually in a play here in New York. I'm acting in, um, Chekhov's three S- sisters. <laughs> so, um, it's a real smorgasbord of different stuff okay. <laughs> going on um but I'm, I'm i'm acting in that starting um i start rehearsals in the spring how does it feel to be back acting so scary so scary we did a read through the other day uh, oscar isaac's gonna be in it too and yeah. he's a really gr- great actor which i knew but also um i got really really nervous um so and also it's Chekhov, which is amazing and no really hard um, I think the last time I attempted checkoff was in scene class in um, <laughs> in college um, with this great acting teacher who also teaches at Juilliard who's you know she's this woman Rebecca guy and she's she's a reason that I you know I, I thought I could write in some ways because I was she was like, she kind of knew I was a writer. Anyway, um, but um, I performed a scene from three sisters in, in her class. And I just remember I walked on on our little stage and she just said from the audience, it's the biggest Masha who's ever lived. And I was like, dear God, it's me. I'm the biggest Masha who's ever lived. And it's because everybody else in the scene was about 5'2", and I was like, F- this whole Masha and um anyway so that's that's the only thing that I have in my mind of performing Chekhov recently was
3: was the biggest Masha who ever lived which I might still be the biggest Masha who's ever lived have you talked about you've been working with Oscar though uh, we did a
4: read through. Okay. Um, okay. We did a read through,
3: and he's he's marvelous. And I fumbled my way through it. Luckily, it was seated. <laughs> um, well, I have great confidence. I'm, I'm excited to see that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope you get to relax after all of this before yeah. rehearsals. It was yeah. so nice talking to you. So nice talking to you too. Okay. Thanks for being here. Thank you.
0: Uh, that does it for this week's episode. We'll be back again next week with two more episodes because we have so much to talk about—from uh, more awards to cats. The time is almost here, very excitingly. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, writing about all of this stuff that we just talked about. Um, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard
5: at Please Review Bombshell for me
0: <laughs> and Joanna at this. and Johanna at JohannaDesta. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for our best description of Jojo Rabbit getting three nominations from the Critics' Choice Awards for Best Young Actor goes to Johanna Desta.
1: It's very offensive to me that they're so young. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts.